Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bork. And Bill, happy International Podcast. Yeah, happy that. Um, happy Sabbath to all of you observing it today. Shabbat Shalom. By the way, in the in the pre-conversation, you remarked about Bruce Coburn uh, getting inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Yes, go Bruce. I was a little dismissive of Canadian songwriters. You were. Thinking that, and I am getting more comments, by the way. We still, it's on the video, but uh, those of you who are just listening to audio, we got another one, Gordon Lightfoot. Oh, I love Gordon Lightfoot. He's like my favorite. But I did get, I did get Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, and Neil Young, so I, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, and, so and, and, and Suzanne, by the way, wait, where was Suzanne? Where was that? Did that take place in Canada? Or yeah, that was in Canada with the oranges. Yeah, the oranges in Canada. Yeah, he could. Stephen Rose says he could go on. I, Feel I, free Steve, to. I, by the way, you know there was a there was a time. You ever? Well, you don't probably don't watch because party interruptions, a sports thing on ESPN with these two guys. Too, they were really they. Uh, you know, at one point they were uh, journalists, uh, uh, but now they just did the TV thing. Mike Wilburn and uh, Tony Kornheiser. But when they first started, he Tony Kornheiser insulted Canada one time. So now every episode he waves a Canadian flag at the end <laughs> and says, Hello, Canada. So I think you may have to do Canadian penance for a while. So I'm just I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There might be some Canadian penance involved. I mean I, I mean I like Canada in general as a culture. I mean the like McKinsey I, Brothers wrote that great McKenzie song. McKinsey Brothers. I like uh, <laughs> their version. You got of, me on that song, Suzanne. Their, I love that, that song. Their, their, their version of the Twelve Days of Christmas is a classic, so Anyway, oh, we got more. By the way, there's another one I missed. Uh, Alanis Morissette is Canadian. I'm an idiot. I, I'm an idiot. I, I feel like I, I, I'm not. Okay, all of our Canadian visitors, I think you need to come up with an appropriate penance for Scott Jones. Send them to us on Facebook, and I will. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I think I think he definitely. You got to do some. You got some. I'll put on like a hockey jersey. Some makeup. And just drink maple syrup straight. Right. And because I respect our Alabama. Uh, listeners, I'm not saying anything about Alabama for a while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I'm, I'm just avoiding it. I'm just avoiding Ian I, Tyson. Is another one. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, and uh, for Friday, if we record Friday, I'm going to get Canadian whiskey. There we go. There we which go. I, I I like Canadian whiskey. Yeah, right? like I, I've had some. Some of it I like more than others, but yeah. So today we wanted to talk about. We're taking a break from our series on Jensen and Garish. To which we will be picking up soon to talk about this op-ed piece from a few days ago by Brett Stevens in the New York Times called "The Dying Art of Disagreement," and it's actually the text of a lecture he delivered at the Lowy Institute um, Media Award Dinner in Sydney, Australia. Men at Work, great Australian band, <laughs> right? Said Fred. By the way, Taylor Swift, uh, her new song. I realize. Right said Fred, who did I'm Too Sexy. He, right. he has a writing credit on that song. Wow. Very good. So very he's still good. around. Very good. There was uh he they brought him on to Keith Urban, Australia. Keith Go Urban, ahead. Australia. They brought him on to John Oliver once because it was found out that Assad, the Syrian dictator, they found out what's on his iPod and one of his Oh, was, I remember. I'm that. too sexy. <laughs> and you're just imagining the stick say, I'm too sexy. And then they brought right said Fred to us. He's like, you're an asshole. <laughs> like, and he just, he did this whole song where he just mocked. Yeah. He yeah. mocked uh, Assad, which is never cool. has so little of a song gotten someone so much. It's, it's beautiful. Actually, I, I had that, I, like, I had that album, like, I think 
in, okay. uh, in high school or college. I, sorry, I got the single and I went to see because I like the uh, song. Okay. Uh, There's like a handful of good songs on that Okay, album. so we have another penance for Scott Jones <laughs> for, buying, like, for like buying that, that album. All right, so I still anyway. have it in iTunes. All right, anyway, I think you just need to be careful because you already got a lot of penance going on this not episode. Not a great day for me. Not a good day. So The Dying Art of Disagreement, and he is given this award, this media award, and he basically talks about how they're, they're, you know, all the disinviting of speakers for political reasons on American campuses. Right and left. Right and left. Yeah. And he says that to say the words, I agree, whether it's agreeing to join an organization or submit to political authority or subscribe to a religious faith may be the basis of every community. That might be an overstatement, but at least it's, it's at the heart of probably what it means. But to say, I disagree, I refuse, you're wrong, etion si omnes, ego non, these are the words that define our individuality. Give us our freedom, enjoy our tolerance, enlarge our perspectives, seize our attention, energize our progress, make our democracies real, and give hope and courage to oppressed people everywhere. Galileo and Darwin, Mandela, Havel, and Louis Xiabo, Rosa Parks, and Nathan Sharansky, such are the ranks of those who disagree. And the problem, as I see, is we're failing at that task. Yeah, no. I, it, it, and again, he's someone who I've heard uh, interviewed a number of times, and I actually saw him interviewed on uh, Chuck Todd interviewed him yesterday about this interview or about this article. And I, I think that's a good show, by the way. Chuck Todd, excellent. Yeah. I think he's very fair. I, I do. Uh, I, t- I completely agree. Yeah. You know, the other thing too is I, I think it's he's a classic example of someone who really loves the country and his institutions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, I mean, he some of the things that's gotten said over the last year. I mean, you can just see him grieved. It's not ideological. It's that he loves the country. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, we've talked about this issue from a lot of different angles. That part of the problem, the the fail, you know, the the collapse of civility, um, the you know, the, the loss of reason, discourse, and things like that. I, I do think, you know, particularly, <clears throat> it's particularly problematic um, when you have either the president of the United States undermining institutions, and equally when you have centers of academic learning. You know, and and the symbols of of classic liberal being in what it means to be a democracy, when you have those places, you know, being bastions of not only intolerance but even violence in the midst of intolerance. I think that's. I, I just think that that is another sign that we've lost our way, both on the left and on on the right. I, I, and I, again, whether you're talking about people speakers being attacked at Middlebury, which he talks about. Or whether the fact that suddenly it's anti-American to express your opinion and to protest something. I think those are all things that, to me, uh, speaks to um, the failure of nerve, you know, the failure of uh, us to remember a little bit about what we were supposed to be about. Yeah, and he, you know, he notes that this is, this is sort of pr- so prevalent in our culture and that extensive survey data shows Republicans are way more right-leaning than they were 20 years ago and Democrats much more left-leaning and that 50% of Republicans would not want their child to marry a Democrat. Nearly a third of Democrats uh, return the sentiment. Only a third. That's because there's a lot of wealthy people. You think, "Ah, well, (laughs) if they marry a wealthy Republican, that might not be bad. Take care of me. But and, and he talks about how the, the polarization is geographic. Well, I, I do. I think the polarization of Republicans has been a more systematic project since Reagan. So in terms of, I mean, it's it is much more of an ideological tribe, and it's been more systematic. I don't think the Democrats have been quite that organized. Yeah, that's probably true. And he talks about how the polarization is also geographic. People, you know, 
Bill Maher did a whole thing last week on his thing, the, the, the country mouse versus the city mouse and how there is differences in rural and urban yeah. centers. And, and in general, I mean, it, these are, you know, these are not every case, but in general, liberal types in the cultural landscape tend to move towards metropolitan areas and, and more conservatives tend to live, live in suburbs and more rural kind of areas. And so, the, so everything gets increased and it's digitized, you know, that, that yeah. we, we sort of, we, he says, you know, we no longer have our own opinions. We have our own facts. We get on the websites that we like. Right. And we, and we've learned that the Russians have been playing that have been literally the Russians played us against each other. There's an old Twilight Zone episode, uh, and there's also a Star Trek episode has a similar theme. But in the old Twilight Zone episode, <clears throat> there's a power outage in this neighborhood. But then periodically, and it's also kind of a critique of the McCarthyism and such that it happened, you know, not that, you know, a number of years earlier than the, than the episode was filmed. But there's a power outage in this community. No one knows what's going on. And periodically, I like the power will come on somewhere else. And different things happen like that. And eventually, the whole neighborhood, you know, they've become vigilantes and they're, they're, you know, they're chasing after each other and they're, you know, accusing each other of being aliens or attacks. And this episode ends where you have these two, you know, these two aliens talking to each other. See, I told you it'd be easy. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just get them fighting each other. And I think that's really, that's really what's happened. I, I think there was a lot of, um, what World War II did to bring us together when all of society was mobilized. Every community, every level lost, had people serving, uh, lost people they loved. Um, You know, uh, Kennedy's, you know, I I was just watching, uh, by the way, I highly recommend, everyone's recommending it, but the Vietnam uh, series, Ken Burns' Vietnam thing is just amazing. And all of, all of um, Kennedy's cabinet had served in World War II. So they all had, so there was a sense where, where, he and uh, Nixon like shared a train once and they were both, you know, both veterans and they were talking right about like yeah. communism. And they both had all these, you know, I mean, they, they had agreed. A, yeah. They had a real frame of reference, a shared frame of reference on some of this. Yeah. Stuff. It's pretty, I mean, the difference between JFK and, 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 and the 1960 version of Richard Nixon was not much at all. Um, and so I do think, you know, I think that there were the, the great, I mean, that generation has almost died out. And the goodwill, I mean, I think the first challenge to that goodwill uh, was, you know, the combination of the civil rights movement and then the explosion of the 60s and things like that and, and the student protest. But I think that's all, it's gone. I mean, certainly the Iraqi-Afghanistan war has made us, you know, symbolically more patriotic. You know, 9-11 brought us together for a little bit. But, um, and again, the legacy, why do we honor first responders at, at football game? Well, that's still that we've, the, the martyrs of 9-11. We've made yeah, them, we yeah. made them martyrs. And so I need just is that the thing that's sacred in the culture is what you can't laugh about. And that's like 9-11. That's not going to, although there was a 9-11 joke on some Netflix thing. There's this, um, Arab comedian. I forget where he's from. It's Middle Eastern comedian. And oh, yeah. he, said, he said like, uh, what about 9-11 tragic thing? I was like, yeah. We lost some of our best guys. <laughs> so that was a 9-11 joke from a Middle Eastern perspective. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean that, right. Yeah, like so these things become sort of like artifices where we, we get brought together. For, for instance, um, the, we've, we've spent trillions of dollars, we've spent a trillion dollars in Iraq and have nothing to show for it really. 
I mean, the fact that all these lives that are shattered. Yeah, we do. We have a strength in Iran. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Iranians. We felt <laughs> the Iranians. But I guess the thing, and now Saudi Arabian women can drive, uh, that, that bastion of progressive thought. But I think what we're, you know, there, there's even a sense where this, this whole thing should be much criticized. I mean, even, uh, I, again, if you watch the, you know, I really thought, I mean, you saw in the first Iraqi war uh, with Colin Powell and Norman Schwarzkopf, these are guys who had learned a lesson of Vietnam. You could just tell yeah, the way yeah, they yeah. talked to them. It seems like this, the, with this ongoing quote-unquote war on terror, it seems like some of those lessons have been forgotten. And even Democrats wanted George H.W. Bush to get rid of Saddam Hussein. We're out watching Al Gore criticizing. I mean, yeah. that was incredible restraint. To just, it was just, no. just, okay, get him back off uh, Kuwait's borders and we're done. Like, yeah, no. The, the, yeah, no, I mean. No, I think, so I think part of this lack of civility is a lack of commonality. And you now you even see it. I mean, uh, Trump w- covers himself in the flag, the Dodge draft dodger that he was, and uh, and is even made, and it makes disparaging comments about war heroes, and yet that has that it's so easy to throw matches now in the common, uh, you know, the combustible time that we are, and and again, I think uh, uh, was <laughs> well, I had lunch with John uh, yesterday, and I said so. We were talking about ancient. We were talking about the fall of the Roman Republic, and I said, "Okay, all right, more becoming a senator in the United States Congress. What decade would you put us uh, in the Roman? You know, where would we be in the Roman period?" He goes, "We're certainly not Marcus Aurelius." <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you enjoy and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, and David Zoll. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. <laughs> wait, wait, the irony about more too, right? It's like Mitch McConnell's just like, we're going to do everything to get this guy you know, elected. So basically, you're going to support a guy who's going to go in there and make your life a living hell. I mean, that's what's going to happen. I mean, Moore's one of these guys that like, I mean, he even if he didn't run, even if Trump supported Strange, which again, Trump's, you know, like was, well, maybe I made a mistake, deleted all his tweets. When does he ever delete a tweet? I know. I it's, mean, he deleted the tweets yeah. and, and kind of, you know, it's interesting because it's almost like the Alabama voters were saying this guy seems in the spirit of Trump 
you know, this sort of, and, and it's interesting that, that Steve Bannon was running around saying, this is a vote for Trump. And Trump never stopped, never said, yeah, never yeah. challenged it. I mean, he never came out and, and sort of said, no, Steve Bannon's not speaking. I mean, he really is very interesting. Yeah, it is a very interesting dynamic. But I think all this is illustrative of what the article was saying. Did you, you know? see that little gun he had to the thing? Oh, that we, he, and Nicole Wallace is like, my kids have bigger water pistols. <laughs> I did see the picture with cowboy hat and the Com- leather vest. Cabert Com- said it looks like Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, the village people, something. It was yeah, very strange. Yeah, very strange. So, yeah, he also says that in this piece, he talks about how he, after he sort of chronicles the inability to re- really disagree meaningfully because there's no shared truth anymore. So it's just, there's no dialogue, debate, mm-hmm. nobody. So he he talks about by the way something very funny about this I was just watching this morning the replay of of Colbert's show last night he had Seinfeld on sign it was it was such a great show and Seinfeld said they were talking about who was their comedic heroes and he said Bill Cosby still thought it was it, it still he's the funniest you know growing up and and Colbert was like but can you enjoy it now. And he says, yeah, sure. Can't we separate, you know, we separate the person from the work and, you know, comedy's tragic. And they and Colbert's like, yeah, I can't. Even though I mean, Bill Cosby got me through a lot of tragic times in my life growing up. And they debated, you know, the, the, the sort of right. projection of the family guy, all the stories about his wife and all this. So then they come back from the break. Jerry goes, you know what? I think you convinced me. I think maybe I can't enjoy it anymore. I haven't tried in a while, but I think you're right. And then Jerry Seinfeld goes, you know, you see, you never see anybody just do this and all the cable news. Nobody just says... You know what? You're right. I changed my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. You yeah. changed my. I, I, I just like to hear people. That, and Colbert's like, oh, you like you're patting yourself on the back for doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. the, but it is you. You don't hear. You don't really hear people persuaded about anything. No, I think you know. Again, and I think it's symbolic that you know uh, John McCain, a war hero, is. I think he said he has a four percent. Pro, you know, survival prognosis, he said the other day. So he's he is in, you know, it doesn't look good for him. And, you know, this man with terminal brain cancer, most likely, is, you know, in his, some of his last most important stands is calling for regular order. And regular order means that we discuss it. We come right, up with a buy, right. we, we agree, we disagree, and we come up with a compromise. And the failure to be able to even have a disagreeable conversation to find a middle ground, I, I mean, that not only, it, we've seen it ruin denominations, We've seen it, um, you know. We see how divided the country is, and it, and and it, and govern the government can't govern, not only on the national level but on the local level. We can't get a budget passed in Pennsylvania, in part of the, because of the partisan inability to compromise. One of the most bring us to the assembly. We'll help. Well, you know, one of the one of the most able. We had a disagreement about the doing theology from the Psalms. It was completely yeah. We did. <laughs> we, we and we got through it. We got through it. Yeah. So, so, you know, then he kind of transitions into, he went to, he talks about um, Alan Bloom's book, The Closing of the American yeah. Mind, which is a provocative book. And, it, and it, it, I mean, it's, it came out in 87. He said he read it in high school. And he said, you know, the, these kind of great books curriculum um, was not conservative in, in any traditional sense of the world of the world he's just he's like he's like i don't even know what we're talking we just read all these books like and all these people argued with each other he says socrates quarrels with homer aristotle quarrels with plato Locke quarrels with hobbes and rousseau quarrels with them both nietzsche quarrels with everyone wittgenstein quarrels with himself <laughs> which is i thought that was brilliant and he said you know in, in the liberal education you learn like at the university of chicago that every great idea is really just a spectacular disagreement with yeah. some other idea 
Uh, it seems to me that's, that's part of uh, why history is so important. Again, I'm a history, I teach history some, and, uh, but it puts things in perspective. I mean, you know, uh, right now I'm in the process of, I did my first lecture on the early Nicene debate and, and you know, going to finish it up. And it's an, ugly, it's an ugly chapter of church history, but it's infinitely real. And I think it's it shows not only, you know, that struggle is real, that people are both can be right about an issue or but can be wrong about how they do it or all that kind of thing. But it also shows, an op, you know, the the importance of ideas and how sometimes synthesis and sometimes, you know, the, the best things come out of this kind of struggle. Uh, yeah, and he, he makes a, a really important point. Uh, he says the quarrels are never personal. Well, that might be overstated. I think for Nietzsche, a lot of it was personal, but um, nor are they. Particular. I think, and I think Wittgenstein had a lot of problem with his younger <laughs> self. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He should have probably had a lot of problem with his older self. He had as great well. hair, though. <laughs> uh, he says, nor are they particularly political, at least in the ordinary sense of politics. And sometimes they take place over the distance of decades, even centuries. More important, most importantly, they're never based on a misunderstanding. Uh, they are. I lost my place in my iPad here. Sorry. This is the problem with tablets uh, that you kind of once you hit it, you lose your spot. So he says, you know, we. Uh, oh, that's that's annoying. Well, he's talking about the fact is, I mean, it's not personal in the way everything's personal. In other words, your idea, you know, uh, a good example we've talked about it before. Uh, Ted Kennedy. And Orrin Hatch were oh, I got, I got best it. friends. Yeah. Right. They were. Yeah, I got it. More importantly, they're never based on a misunderstanding. On the contrary, disagreements arise from perfect comprehension, from having chewed over the ideas of your intellectual opponents so thoroughly that you can properly spit them out. In other words, to disagree well, you, you must first understand well. Right. You have to read deeply, listen carefully, watch closely. You need to grant your adversary more respect, give him an intellectual benefit of the doubt, have sympathy for the motives. It goes on. And I think that is absolutely true. I mean, that that's that you, you know, Bart used to say about Schleiermacher, he said, no one can hate here unless they first love here. And dare right. I say, are tempted to love and love again. Yeah. So you really, you, yeah, I think it's very, real good disagreements come out of a real understanding, not a misunderstanding or caricature of, of, uh, somebody that you disagree with, but actually, uh, you, know, you get drawn into the point they're making. I I want to. I remember Diogenes. Um, I don't know if I ever told the story before, but uh, he very you know, blessed memory and intimidating, very brilliant. Did not guy. suffer fools lightly. Did not suffer fools lightly. So we're in this class. It's an advanced colloquium on love, and uh, there's a student in front, and uh, he walks in, and and uh, she asks a question, and it's one of those graduate school questions. That you're trying to look bright. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, we all, yeah, everybody's done those. And, uh, and he stops and he looks at him and he goes, I don't know what the hell you're saying. <laughs> and he goes, ask it again. Okay. Well, at this point, you know, the level of anxiety goes up a little bit and she's, she stammers and she says it the same way. Same thing, only different. He goes, you've just said the same thing the same way. <laughs> ask it again. And he worked with her for 10 minutes. I'm sitting behind her. You can see her her back is just sweat. <laughs> it's just soaking. But then at the end of 10 minutes, she asks something. He goes, he does this. He looks at her. He goes, that is a brilliant question. Hmm. Let's talk hmm. about that. Hmm. And now, again, this day, you know, I mean, he whether or not, you know, people would complain about it and say it was disrespectful. But I actually thought what was going on there, she was not taking either herself or the class or him that seriously with the initial question. Maybe she took herself too seriously. But he took 
her seriously enough to help her ask a good question. And I think that's a little bit to me as, as you really listening. I mean, in other words, you know, my, my temptation would have been, all right, that person's just asking a stupid question to show off. Uh, I'd have brushed it off. Let's get into the lecture. But I really, I thought that was, I actually thought that was a, a moment that he was willing to do the dis- uncomfortable thing to get to the better thing. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And, you know, he talks about how the rise of identity politics in this piece says that it makes the di- it makes the distance between making an argument and causing offense terrifyingly short. Yeah, no. And so it, these kinds of exchanges you're talking about never get teased out. Because right. you just, it, it's just, you know, and then, you know, it's really interesting. I was thinking, as I was thinking about this this morning, I listened to this podcast twice by 538 Politics. It was on gerrymandering. And they're going to do a series on gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a court, the Wisconsin case is before the Supreme Court right now, right? Like well, and there was a Texas case between the right. Supreme Court. And that one was a race-based one. Yeah. And this is a different, this is one that is around, around, like basically partisan gerrymandering. Right. It, it was really interesting. They had this really interesting analogy. It's called uh, cracking and uh, stacking. Or, or so basically, he's like, let's say you take a handle of vodka. That should make about forty mixed drinks. You know, with like, right. but let's just say I take uh, forty, you know, forty glass of tonic water and just put a few drops. You know, that's not going to get anybody buzzed. He's like, then let's say if I take five uh, right. glasses. And pour the rest of the vodka in those five. Those people will get tanked. Right. He says, this sounds like a weird party. He says, basically... That's, that, what, that's Wisconsin. Right, yeah. And he says, basically, yeah. that what happens, they have this efficiency theory. So, basically, if, if the, the number of votes are... This kind of wasting over 50% uh, of the winning candidate, uh, that's when they're kind of wasted that way. And the losing candidate... The minority candidate, like, you know, the, the, they're all spread out. Those are wasted votes. And there's this kind of equation mm-hmm. where you add those together, the wasted votes from the winner and the losers, and then you subtract it from the general thing and you get this efficiency quote. And they said they're, they're saying that, like, the, the efficiency quote, the efficiency number in Wisconsin is so high, like 13, right. 14 percent. They're saying eight is like at the threshold where it starts to become really problematic or something. And yeah. And so he was saying that, like, the last election, I think, they got 61% of the legislature with 48% of the vote or 48%. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, they were talking about this. And, of course, I who likes gerrymandering, right? You, you start, But then you're hearing the counterarguments. I'm like, yeah, well, what about legitimate geographic differences? What about things that are, you know, people live in this area and live in that area? And then what about the, the fact that, like, the courts, the Constitution, does the Constitution give courts the right to do this? And Kennedy's frustration or, or Kennedy's in, seeming invitation. They're kind of writing this argument for Kennedy, but it's like, okay, but can you find a limited particular standard that shows it? And it's not, it's, and, you know, so, so I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, like I would love to see non gerrymandering kind of districts. I think it would make us a better country because candidates would be more middle of the road. Yes. You'd have to, you'd have to appeal to people that weren't your base. You'd have to, but then I was sitting there thinking, I think I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I'm like, gosh, these are a lot of complicated issues. I it don't know how, very, you know, they, they, and this is something I think is, is problematic. And yet, and yet when you try to fix it, that's the, also, there, there are real concerns. And some of the concerns laid out by the plaintiff, which is the attorney general of Wisconsin, I actually said, yeah, I don't know how I would come back. Well, to you that. know, the trouble is being, being patriotic right now is not standing up for the national anthem. Being patriotic is actually trying to care enough to make the country work again. Yeah, and that, and that takes you know, and, and that takes willing to share power. And I think a lot of this, I mean, I, you know, and I had some friends who were politicians in Pennsylvania. I mean, 
the the gymnastics that went on every time you know districts got gerrymandered in Pennsylvania, you know, and both the Republicans and the Democrats. Did All right, and, yeah, this is yeah, the Democrats do it too. It's not one. I mean, it, it favors Republicans a little more nationally, but there's tons of places like Illinois it, it, where sure. where if I think something like 13 states. Well, the reason it favors Republicans nationally is because they have they've worked on the grass level, they've taken over yeah. house, and when they take over state governments, they rewrite the maps. Right, we, right. That's that's just point of fact. Yeah, and it's interesting if if this if they granted the argument, I think that they're making that, that the 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 Wisconsin people that want it changed to make. I think thirteen states would have to would have unconstitutional maps. Yeah. So it's I mean, but on a host of these issues, like I, you know, it's interesting because he talks about the virtue of the liberal education, and everybody's talking about we need more STEM people. You know, we need more STEM, which is like science, technology, engineering, sure. mathematics. Um, which we do. I mean, those things are important. But I, I think one of the reasons we're not as good at math and science as we should be is because we're not good at thinking. Right. Exactly. Which and, you learn from the liberal arts. And there was a great Mar- uh, Mar- YouTube video that, where Martha Nussbaum was interviewed and talking about her making arguments for liberal studies and lots of corporations, corporate yeah. heads she talked to. said we, we hire English majors. Right. Because people can think. And I think. Can write. Learning how to think about things and learning how to, yeah, have a disagreement that's substantive. Right. And actually, and you can say, yeah, oh, yeah, huh. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm persuaded by that. Or I didn't think about that before. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I've mentioned this before, but we'd always begin this one series of interfaith dialogues I was with would always begin. Uh, can we reason, come let us reason together? And I, again, I, I've said this before. It may even be harder because with other Christians, it's kind of like it's a family. Sometimes family conflict is the worst kind because the stakes are higher mm. and uh, you're closer. Uh, that's why yeah, I think the Pharisees took the most issue of Jesus because he was in a lot of ways – Agreed with them. Um, but I do think, can we model this? Can we say, come let us reason together uh, so that we, that our disagreements may be, may be done in a, in, a, in a Christian way? Uh, I have an icon, one of my favorite icons. I have an icon of uh, St. Paul and St. Peter embracing. Uh, and it's, you know, it's kind of a famous icon. And uh, <laughs> I, I, what, I don't know that it happened in this life, but I, I believe it happened in the eschaton, but, uh, or in the life to come. And, and, but hopefully we can kind of uh, realize what heaven's going to be and go backwards, particularly with our fellow Christians who, with whom we disagree. We should be doing with our, in some levels as Christians, we should be more generous with non-Christians who disagree with us Absolutely. To, to represent Christ. And as Christians, we should be more at least more open to understand the differences because they are our families. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is part of, you know, when in Jeremiah, when the exiles are told to seek the shalom of the city of Babylon, because in its shalom, you'll find your shalom. I mean, I think this is part of shalom seeking, like learning to talk and reason together for the sake of the common good. That's not lock arms. That's, that's lock our minds in conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It's been one week since you looked at me. Hey, 
forgiven me But it'll still be two days till I say I'm sorry Hold it, now I want to hoodwink Does it make you stop, think? You'll think you're looking at Aquaman I summon fish to the dish Although I like the shally Swiss I like the sushi Cause it's never touch a frying pan Hot like wasabi when I bust rhymes Big like Leanne rhymes Because I'm all about value Bert Campers got the mad hits You try to match wits You try to hold me but I bust through Gonna make a break and take a pick out Like a sink and ache and shake out like vanilla It's the finest of the flavors Gotta see the jokers And you'll know the vertigo is gonna go Cause it's so dangerous You'll have to sign a waiver Can I help it if I think you're funny when you're mad? Trying hard not to smile though I feel bad I'm the kind of guy who laughs at a funeral Can't understand what I mean, well you soon will I have a tendency to wear my mind on my sleeve I have a history of taking off my shirt It's been one week since you looked at me Threw your arms in the air and said you're crazy Five days since you tackled me I still got the red runs on both my knees It's been three days since the afternoon You realize it's not my fault, but only too soon Yesterday you've forgiven me And now I'll sit back and wait till you say you're sorry Chinese chicken, you have a drumstick and your brain stops sticking. Watching X Files with no lights on, with all our maisons. I hope the smoky man's in this one, like Harrison Ford. I'm getting frantic, like Stingham Tantric, like Snickers guaranteed to satisfy. Like Kurosawa, I make mad films. K, I don't make films, but if I did, they'd have a samurai. Gonna get a set of better clubs, gonna find the kind with tiny nubs, just so my irons aren't always flying off the backswing. Gonna get into my sailor moon, cause the cartoonist got the boom anime babes to make me think the wrong thing. How can I help it if I think you're funny when you're mad? Trying hard not to smile, though I feel bad. I'm the kind of guy who laughs at a funeral Can't understand what I mean, you soon will I have a tendency to wear my mind on my sleeve I have a history of losing my shirt It's been one week since you looked at me Dropped your arms to the sides and said I'm sorry Five days since I laughed at you And said you just did just what I thought you were gonna do Three days since the living room We realized we're both to blame, but what could we do? Yesterday, you just smiled at me Cause it'll still be two days till we said we're sorry It'll still be two days till we said we're sorry Birchman Stadium, home of the Robbie.